Welcome to So You Want to Be a Leader, Really? A Defy Expectations podcast. I'm Vicky Hampson. And I'm Helen Honeyset. We're here to explore the highs and lows of leadership today with our guests. And also help you navigate the complexities of being a leader from every aspect, from the sublime to the absolutely ridiculous and everything in between. This week's guest is Douglas Squirrel, who has spent decades leading in technology and embracing the fast change that is so inherent in that sector. Hello, great to be here. Welcome, welcome, Douglas. Really good to have you here. Before we dive in, let me tell everybody that you can find more information about Douglas. And I'm also very interested to see how the Squirrel Squadron email. Love that. You can find all of that info on our website if you visit www.defyexpectations.co.uk for all that info. So Douglas, you've spent your corporate career in technology. And that's an area which has undergone a huge amount of change. How has working in such a high change environment made you become a better leader? Well, the first thing is that nothing seems to change. So I remember back to the very first job I had out of university, and we were struggling with just the same kinds of issues that we struggle with today. They had different names. We didn't have chat GPT and blockchain. We had the web and e-commerce. Those were the new exciting things. And we've kind of mastered those specific technologies. But the issues remain exactly the same. The change is happening very rapidly. People are discovering new things in technology all the time. And business is really struggling to keep up because businesses are not having the right conversations. That's the main challenge. It's a people problem, not a technological one. That concept of technology changes but actually the issues don't, and it's a people problem. How as a technology leader, can you drive those conversations about getting people to embrace the change and understanding that it's not a technology problem and it's not a newness of technology problem, but it's actually inherent in the behaviors of an organization? Yeah, there's there's two things to do there. The first is avoid talking about getting someone to do something, convince someone to do something. I know you both know that, but the technology and non-technology leaders I coach often say, well, look, I just have to convince those engineers to work on these business problems. I just have to convince the marketing people to stop marketing the products we don't have yet and sell the ones that we do. And I tell them, you're not allowed to say the word convince anymore. Because the danger is that you assume that you know the right answer. And when you start there, you don't convince anybody. You don't get there. And the challenge, particularly for us engineers, one reason it's hard for for people who talk to computers a lot to do this kind of thinking, and it's going to your second part of your question, where does this come from? What do we do about it? One of the reasons engineers have trouble with that is that's not how you talk to computers. With computers, you start with what you want the computer to do, and you define that really carefully and thoughtfully, and then you very carefully give the computer instructions for how to do it. You're convincing the computer, and often you feel like you're banging your head against the keyboard because the computer doesn't quite do what you want, but the goal is to, to tighten up your control more. The trick with dealing with the people who are using the computer programs that you're writing is completely different. You want to have less control. So if you can go to them and understand what their business problem is and use business language to do that, you build trust with them. 
And when you build that trust, then you can develop the, the technological solutions that actually work for them. And guess what? That often doesn't involve the fanciest, latest cutting edge stuff, which is what we're all reading about. You know, I have clients who are experimenting with all the AI models and the blockchain solutions and so on. They're working with those things. That's fantastic. But when they start to say, oh, this is the solution for us. We need to go here. This is what we need to hire 10 people to do. I say, hang on. Why are you doing that? Do you understand what the outcome is going to be? You almost certainly don't, because nobody knows what these things are for yet. They're all way too new. And when I say that's the same as what we had with web and, and e-commerce in, in 2000, that's what I mean, because that's the struggle so many people had. They built websites that made no sense because everybody was building websites. Now we're all building chatbots because that's what everybody's doing. We'd do much better to think about what our customer needs, which might be an internal customer, and build trust with them. It's interesting you bring it all back to trust because I think that is so critical. And having been a technology or a leader in technology division, that trust in technology is going to solve everything rather than that trust in the people around us who can work together is a really interesting shift. Uh, it's so much easier to rely on the technology. It avoids the difficult conversation. I wrote an entire book about how to have difficult conversations about technology and other topics. And the first step is to build the trust with others that helps you to understand that you can have a conversation about what the customer's actual needs are, what the technology could do for them. And if you start with that, rather than starting with a definition of some fancy technology that you want to use, you wind up with a much more difficult conversation. It might be a real challenge for the people involved to think that way. And they might have to really disagree with each other vigorously. That's painful. It would be much easier to just say, hey, we're going to try the new technology. It'll solve everything. The problem is you and I know we've been through it enough. We've been through the wars to know that that doesn't work. Um, I've got a client, for example, right now who is painfully having made an acquisition defining what their market is, what their tiers are, which types of customers they're going to serve, how much customization they will do for each one. And I keep dragging them back to have the difficult conversation because they all want to say, oh, great, we'll just do it this way. We'll define this and we'll write the document, then it'll be done. No, you have to define the language, have a discussion about what market you're in, what technology can serve that. And guess what? You're probably going to have to exit some of those markets. And that's really challenging for them, but it's the right conversation to have. It's the right productive conflict. I guess straight, straight out the gate, this conversation has kind of hit that perspective of trust straight away. And it's obviously completely central to everything that you think and speak about and your strategies of how you work with clients. And as you were saying earlier, learn to not say the word convince, but to build that trust. And it really piqued an interest with me because one of the things that Helen and I have operated with this approach around insight selling, which is about shifting the thinking of the buyer. And it is about shifting mindset and the grounding of all of that is trust. So you're absolutely right, Douglas. It's whichever way you look at this and whichever Rubik's cube route you turn, from the perspective or the function you're working in, trust is the fundament. It also reminds us of another conversation we had where we were told that awareness trumps everything and we really believe that. So if you don't have that awareness, you're not able to build that fundament of trust. So I think there's lots of real strong connections here. So I just had to call that out because it really made me think. And can, it, I, can I tell you a fun story briefly? Would that be okay? I hope yeah. we have time. And I'm going to show you something. Of course, listeners can't see this, but don't worry, I'm going to describe it. 
Um, and this is the result of lack of trust between the technologists and the people specifying what they needed. This is a Rubik's Cube, which if I hold it up to the camera, you folks can see, has Braille on it. And you might say, oh, this is really great. My wife is blind. You might hear her guide dog in the background. And you might, and she actually ordered this saying, hurrah, I can have a Rubik's Cube that I can use because I'll be able to, to use the Braille. And it's hard to see here. And of course, listeners can't see it. When I run my finger along here, there's something very important that happens, which is I don't feel any bumps. This is a Rubik's Cube with Braille on it, which is not raised. <laughs> so my wife got it and she said, this is broken. You know, they sold, sent me the wrong Rubik's Cube. And she showed it to me and I said, but it has Braille on it. It has Braille that you cannot feel. They were trusting in the technology, right? They gave a specification. They probably sent a picture of all the right little Braille numbers to put on it and everything else, but didn't manage to actually have the engagement in the difficult conversation with their buyer to say, will this actually work? <laughs> Can a blind person actually make any use of this? And clearly no blind people were involved in the production of this Rubik's Cube. So I thought you would be entertained by that story. I'm almost lost for words at that one, Douglas, which is kind of very rarely happens. But it's why I keep it here on my desk. And, and I'd mentioned the Rubik's Cube, so it was a brilliant segue into that story. And and maybe another time we can discuss whether your wife has been able to source a more accurate Rubik's Cube with Braille bumps. She hasn't yet, but we're, we're working on it. I'm going to keep looking for that. Thank you. So, so on that same note, and I guess talking about mistakes and fails, we know that you've said you've made every mistake in the book. And given that, how do you work with your clients knowing all of that, those mistakes and learning from them to help them spot what might be on the horizon and help them course correct or prepare for that? The main way is by telling lots of stories, like the one I just told, which is about somebody else's mistake, but to tell lots of tales about mistakes that I've made. For example, when I was a CTO, I spent an awful lot of my time in defensive mode. And I often talked about the suits. We did a certain amount of consulting work in the early days in the first startup where I was CTO. And we would be hired by a company that wanted us to build some software for them. And I created this kind of us and them dynamic, which was very helpful for my engineers to feel united. And we'd feel that we were putting it to the suits and it was very anarchic. Uh, you know, we're singing the Marseillaise as we stuck it to the man. The problem was we didn't have any real connection to those suits who were the ones paying our salaries. It wasn't a very good approach. And so when people I'm coaching come to me and say, I have this opposition, I have this irresistible force and this immovable object, and I just can't get past this other person in marketing or sales or product or wherever it is. I tell them that story and I say, I used to talk about the suits and how they're not helpful. And then I discovered that actually, once I got to know what those folks were doing, it was very helpful. When I can help them to use particular techniques, I have methods, for example, for building trust that I can teach them. And I say, apply that and you will get the benefits that I got after seven or eight years of screwing up when I suddenly discovered that actually the people I had been denigrating and working against actually had all the answers. As a leader, we have in our heads, leaders unite their teams. They get us pointed in the right direction. We're all moving there. We're rowing brilliantly. We're a phenomenal F1 pit team or whatever the analogy is. But that happens or can happen in such isolation. I saw something on LinkedIn this morning that really sort of resonated with me, which said, leaders have to be translators. And you've spoken about the engineering mindset. Well, there's a sales mindset, there's a marketing there mindset. There's a, you can know, I sort of... add something to that? Yeah. So I would say not only translators, but language definers. So one thing I was just talking about in one of my Squirrel Squadron events, and we were discussing leading engineering teams. 
I said, one of the crucial things that you need to do is define the language that other people use. You're certainly also going to be translating their current language into that. I was giving a very simple example of that when I said I outlawed the word convince. So I'm defining language there. And so I have to give them new words like build trust and jointly design and so on to replace that. And the other example I was using where the, the company was defining what its levels of service were, that's another way of defining the language. The wonderful thing about that is you don't need to be a domain expert. You don't need to know a bit from a byte or how to build a server or how to market on inner Facebook in order to define that kind of language. What you need is the overall business understanding. And when you create that language, you help people translate into it, but you set the parameters for the discussion, which allows them to build trust and, and get to where you want them to go. And that's much better than the opposition of we're fighting against the suits over there. They're useless, or we're always trying to overcome IT. That's not so helpful. What is helpful is defining the language. Defining that language and then making sure everybody can switch languages really easily. And I think that's such a skill. And defy expectations. We talk about creating great leaders. That's our mission. That's what we do. But there is so much on a leader's plate. How do they find the time and how do you work with your clients to help them speed up and prioritize that process of defining that language, communicating effectively, translating in a way that really allows the team to carry on being that amazing F1 pit team or the Olympic rowing team going in the right direction, but bringing everybody with them rather than going against that immovable force. Indeed. So you referred to finding time or speeding things up. I don't talk those terms. I often tell people, you have 86,400 seconds today, and so do I, and so does Bill Gates, and so does Elon Musk. You name anybody, they have the same amount of time in the day. What you need to do is disappoint people helpfully. And that means that you're going to take certain things that you're not going to do and be really clear about them and communicate them upfront and tell people about why you are not doing them. So for example, I remember being a very junior programmer sitting in the lunchroom and I was just eating my lunch quietly. And somebody else who was a leader of a big division, hundreds of people, came in and I heard part of her conversation. And she was telling somebody else that she was going to miss all her targets for the quarter. And I was listening then. Boy, I was really interested. I thought, oh my gosh, the company is going to fail. This seems really important. And she said, there's a really good reason. I've got a junior person running my team uh, and they're going to do okay, but they're not going to hit the targets. I'm spending every week flying to Boston where we're buying this company. And I said, two things. Number one, I really got to make sure that I know what's happening in this division because this team is going to be doing things differently. And also, there must be something important happening in Boston. I should pay attention to that. Now, she just happened to be wandering through the lunchroom, but she was broadcasting this information, which was the very helpful part. That's the disappointing part. She was disappointing this person and anybody within earshot about her targets. But she was also being helpful. She was explaining that this acquisition in Boston was very important and people should pay attention to it. And you get both those benefits. Unfortunately, what people often do is they either don't disappoint anyone, they try to make everyone happy and then their brains explode, or they do disappoint people implicitly or implicitly, but they forget the helpfully part. They never explain what else it is that they're doing. So that creates less trust and less knowledge. When you disappoint people helpfully, you increase the trust and you increase the time that you have to work on the right things because they fall into line. They align naturally to the real priority, which you're telling them about. Douglas, I wanted to jump in here because again, 
this conversation we're having and your reference to language has really made me think. So the beautiful language you have just used in that phrase to disappoint people helpfully. There's a real positivity around that language. It's very positively framed. It's kind of from that mode of that growth mindset. Mm -hmm. What it made me think of is it's almost counterintuitive to this thinking that is around the sort of language that plays to the radical candor, to that honesty, to that to the point. So we favor the former and your language around doing things the right way because it's founded in trust and the right behaviors. So how do you sort of see that balance of the two when you've actually sometimes just got to, you know, let people know very directly? How do you still employ your practices of disappointing people helpfully, yet being very honest, pragmatic and to the point? Well, there's two different purposes there. So when I'm disappointing you, I'm giving you information about my behavior. When I'm reprimanding you, and I actually prefer that type of language rather than redirecting or giving feedback or something like that, which is kind of euphemisms people use. For example, I'd rather I said, I have a reprimand for you, Vicky. I think you should listen more carefully and you should understand whether people say hopefully or hopefully there's a problem here where you're not listening well enough. And when you did that, I felt disappointed and hurt that, that you hadn't listened to me. However, Vicky, I have seen you listen very carefully in other contexts. So outside the podcast, you're very empathic and thoughtful. I think there's a problem here where you're not applying those skills here in the podcast. Now, I just gave you a reprimand. I was very direct, right? I did not leaven that in any way or, or tone that down. But I think I was positive. In other words, I said, this is how I'm feeling about it. This is what's not working for me. This is someplace where you've done better, and I'm looking for you to do that. So that's how I do it, just to give an example. And that's straight from a book called The One Minute Manager, which is very good if you read the oldest editions where they still talk about reprimands. When you give a reprimand like that, it's important to include your emotion without creating negative emotional signals. I didn't deliver it in a angry way, pounding on the table red in the face, but I did say I'm disappointed and hurt. And that emotion lands better when you report it. You should do it in an emotional way that's supportive and positive and confident. That's really, really helpful to have that, I guess, that level of capability and insight to bring to that short part of the conversation. Thank you for defining it. It's super Mm -hmm. important for us. And thank you for for not taking my reprimand seriously. I didn't mind at all. I've learned from that, Douglas. Thank you. It's a really interesting point on language because things like reprimand have been given a bad rap because we might offend somebody. But the reality is we all have a role to play. We all have a job to do. And if you come from it from a perspective that you're automatically defensive going into a conversation because you're scared about how somebody else is going to respond, then you cannot also step into that place where you can truly understand what has caused that behavior and support them moving through. Mm-hmm. Can I say what you need to do that? Because it's not evident at all. What you need to do in order to make that happen is to practice. And the thing that people just miss all the time is that we all feel like we're really good at conversations because we have them all the time. We must be good at them. In fact, we suck. We're really bad at having conversations. Humans are just not designed. Our brains did not evolve to have really effective conversations of the kind that we've just been talking about. And so something I emphasize with people is you need to practice. I have all kinds of methods I use with the folks I coach. Some of them involve eight-year-olds who are really good conversation partners because they will tell you what they actually think. But there are lots of ways that you can practice. But the most important thing is that you do practice. 
And the reason I could give an off-the-cuff reprimand like I did to, to Vicky is that I've practiced that a lot, both with real ones and in safe situations where I've practiced. And when you develop the muscles to do that and you have the skills and the habits that go with that, it becomes much easier to, to go into the difficult conversation. But if you haven't practiced or if you don't keep practicing, it, the skill atrophies. It's just like running or jumping or, or hitting a baseball. Any skill like that requires constant practice. How do you define communication, Thinking, talking about defining language? That's an interesting one. I would say communication is one of our most difficult skills. We're not very good at it, but it's the sharing of stories. So one of the things that was a real breakthrough as we were writing the book was when we realized something we knew implicitly, which is that when I build trust with you, I determine what your story is and I share my story. And those stories naturally tend to align. They'll never overlap completely. So building a common story is, I guess, my, my best definition of communication. So Douglas, one of the questions we ask all of our guests relates to us as a business and our, our business name, Defy Expectations. And within that, the word defiant is something that we believe in because we like being a little bit maverick and we like proving things a little bit wrong. So what we always ask is, if you have a pearl of defiant wisdom for others who are aspiring to be leaders, what would that be? Mm. So it, it strikes me that it, it's very thematic with all that we've been talking about. My advice to my younger self or listeners who, who need something to learn as they're, they're growing and in, 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 in being leaders would be talk to lots of people that you wouldn't normally. And this is particularly acute for engineers who tend to just sit in front of their computers and talk to nobody. But it applies just as much to salespeople who spend a lot of time on the golf course just talking to, to customers and buyers and never talk to their IT team or their marketing group or their customer service. So everybody's prone to this, to stay insular and not talk to people outside. But what really benefited me and helped me to overcome all the mistakes and, and challenges that we've talked about is that I spent time within my business talking to people all around the business. It helped it was relatively small, that first business, but I made the effort to go and understand what somebody was doing in sales and why they were asking for such complicated tools on their desktop rather than just getting them a high-spec computer and a fancy microphone. This conversation hasn't gone in the way that I thought it would, but the thing that's happened is the reinforcing common thread for leadership everywhere is become more aware, build that trust, become more aware, build that trust, become more aware, build that trust, that circle. Because I thought when we first set this up, I was going to be fascinated to talk about fast change, high you know, sort of pressure environments that we get the idea that technology is a lot of the time. And it is. And that's exactly where you need to build trust and become more aware. That's where it becomes, it really pays off in the F1 pit, as you described. I've been really, again, inspired by the fact that you've brought this to the subject of storytelling. And you've used storytelling as the beautiful wrapping paper around all of these contexts. And quite often storytelling is, is either overblown as the magic wand for so many things and then is executed pretty badly. Or certainly Helen and I came across an experience where the concept of storytelling had a really big pushback from a cultural perspective because it wasn't fact. And I've really been interested by how you have used the wraparound of storytelling 
and how to bring people with you and, and use stories with trust because they're founded on your own experiences. We all have stories. They're in our heads. We, we need to share them so that they get out of our heads. The mistake we often make is we believe we and others have telepathy and we can discover other stories and they can discover ours. You have to share it directly. Very true. Stories help us get out of our own way. So, Douglas, I just want to say thank you for, for really inspiring us to think differently this morning. And for others who are listening, if you've been as inspired as we have been by Douglas's perspectives and, and some of the aha moments I hope he's created for you, because he certainly has for me, check back in again as we're going to be running these regularly. And we're going to be covering every aspect of the skills, the capabilities that leaders need to continuously develop and evolve to really thrive. Do look at our website, defyexpectations.co.uk, and remember to follow us to get notified of our next episode. Mm-hmm.